0: This Father's Day, give Dad the gift that guarantees him a great morning every day. That's Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's Best Pair You'll Ever Wear or its free guarantee. Get 30% off gifts for Dad on select Father's Day styles at TommyJohn.com. Save 30% at TommyJohn.com. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive and may be upsetting for young listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. For support, victims and survivors of domestic violence can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or visit www.thehotline.org. Suzette Gwynne's highest priority was running a successful business. As the manager of a brothel, she had to make sure that everyone in her employ followed the rules, no exceptions. The brothel industry was strictly regulated and any violations put the business at risk of being shut down. That's why John Wayne Bobbitt was such a liability. The trouble was he wouldn't listen. The rules went in one ear and out the other. Suzanne told him he couldn't touch any of her girls and he did it anyway. She told him he couldn't drink while he was working behind the bar and he did it anyway. She told him not to get the customers drunk and he did it anyway. It was time to get rid of him. As Suzanne predicted, John was angry when she fired him. She knew that he had a mean streak. She wasn't surprised to see it come out now. But Suzanne was prepared. She summoned security and asked them to escort John off the property. As she watched them lead John away, Suzanne felt relief, but also a twinge of worry. It was that mean streak that bothered her. She hoped that she wasn't opening the door to all kinds of trouble, but at least John had a short attention span. With any luck, he would slink off quietly and forget all about her. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. The infamous marriage of John and Lorena Bobbitt may seem like a relic of the 1990s, but their volatile relationship ignited debates about sexual assault, individual privacy, the cult of celebrity, and the sensationalization of the news media. More than 25 years later, these issues remain at the forefront of public discourse, making the Bobbitt story as timely as ever. Last week we covered how 24-year-old Lorena Bobbitt cut off her husband John's penis after he sexually assaulted her. 26-year-old John Wayne Bobbitt was tried for marital sexual assault and found not guilty. Lorena was tried for malicious wounding. She was also found not guilty by reason of insanity. In our final episode on the Bobbitts, we'll explore how John and Lorena's lives diverged after these trials how each responded to their newfound notoriety, and how they fared when the spotlight faded. When 25-year-old Lorena Bobbitt heard the jury declare her not guilty, she was thrilled, but her relief faded when she realized that she still faced an alarming future. Under Virginia law, all defendants found not guilty by reason of insanity, were automatically sent to a maximum security mental hospital for a mandatory 45-day evaluation period. Immediately after her trial in January of 1994, Lorena was transferred to Central State Hospital in Petersburg, Virginia, a prison-like facility that housed over 500 patients. Some had been committed there for years. Lorena had no idea when she would be released, That would depend on the conclusion her doctors reached after 45 days. If they felt she wasn't ready for release after the evaluation period, she would likely be committed for an additional six-month term. If she still wasn't ready after that, her term could be extended indefinitely. Despite the fact that Lorena was institutionalized, many members of the public felt that she had gotten off lightly. Her case sparked new debates about the use of an insanity plea in criminal trials. Before I continue with Lorena Psychology, please note I am not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Though the insanity defense is controversial, it is used in less than 1% of criminal cases. Juries are often skeptical of such claims An American Psychiatric Association study revealed that in those cases where the insanity defense is invoked, it is successful just 25% of the time. Lorena Bobbitt's case represented one of those rare instances where the jury agreed with the plea. Celebrity defense attorney Alan Dershowitz called Lorena's insanity defense a cop-out and an excuse to deny responsibility and justify revenge. He dismissed the idea that John's abusive behavior could have driven Lorena to snap. He evidently did not give credence to psychological studies showing how years of abuse can condition women to stay with their abusers. Instead, Dershowitz claimed she could have left. Georgetown law professor Paul Rothstein echoed Dershowitz's sentiments, musing that too much compassion by a jury could appear to condone criminal behavior, While legal experts and media personalities attacked Lorena's character, she struggled under the weight of constant scrutiny. Many people thought that the public would quickly lose interest in the Bobbitts after the end of their trials. One Washington Post columnist wrote, It's hard to believe the public wants to hear an awful lot more about the case. Unfortunately, this was not true, at least not at first. The media did not withdraw from the story, even as Lorena underwent treatment at the state mental health facility. Hospital staff later talked about helicopters flying over the hospital grounds during recreation time, trying to gather footage of Lorena outside. Media personalities sent notes and flowers to the facility, hoping she would agree to an interview. Lorena ignored these requests and tried to focus on her therapy. Lorena recalled that she was frightened during her time at the hospital. She said, I was fighting all kinds of bad memories. I felt that I was hunted by my husband. Part of her treatment involved talking through these traumatic memories. Slowly, she became less fearful. She said, the more I talked, I wanted to talk even more and more. Lorena spent most of her marriage to John feeling isolated and degraded but discussing her trauma helped her to process what happened. According to the research of Dr. Kiri Sabot from the University of Szeged in Hungary, talk therapy not only eases symptoms of PTSD, but it can alter the physical biology of people suffering from PTSD symptoms. Dr. Szabot's study measured activity in the hippocampus, an area of the brain associated with learning and emotions. The hippocampus helps regulate the body's stress and relaxation responses and is also connected to a person's self-esteem, optimism, and happiness. Some studies have found that people with severe chronic cases of PTSD have a smaller hippocampus than average, but Dr. Zabot's research showed that people who participated in 12 weeks of talk therapy experienced structural changes in the brain that increased the size of the hippocampus. A larger hippocampus correlates with better self-esteem and physical well-being. Lorena said that talking about the abuse made her realize that, as bad as her marriage was, she had survived it. Having already lived through a nightmare, she felt more confident to face the obstacles ahead of her. Over the next few weeks, Lorena's state-appointed doctors reported that she was responding positively to her therapy. On February 25th, 1994, Five weeks after the end of Lorena's trial, her psychiatrist sent a recommendation to the judge that she be released from the hospital. He felt that she would benefit from outpatient care. Three days later, Lorena attended a hearing at the Prince William Circuit Court. She was anxious to see whether the judge would agree with her doctor's determination. Lorena could hardly breathe as she sat through her hearing. It wasn't long, just 25 minutes, but she had been counting down every single day of her stay in the hospital, and time seemed to pass excruciatingly slowly. All she wanted was for her life to be her own again. She could handle the jokes and the people calling her crazy, if only she had her freedom Part of her couldn't help but fear what would happen when she was freed. She wondered if she would ever have the things she dreamed of, a loving husband, children, or a place that felt like a real home. But she tried to put those thoughts out of her mind. Lorena was sure that her life ahead would be full of uncertainties and struggles. Her challenge for the moment was just to get through the hearing. The circuit court judge determined that Lorena did not pose a threat to herself or the public and granted her release. As a condition of her release, she had to continue treatment with a private therapist and provide the court regular updates. She was also required to stay in Virginia. She was not permitted to travel, even to Venezuela to visit family members without the court's permission. Lorena didn't seem phased by these restrictions. She was just relieved to be out of the hospital. She gave a brief press conference outside the courthouse, thanking everyone who sent her letters of support and words of encouragement. She told journalists that she looked forward to continuing the healing process. Her behavior showed how much she had changed since starting therapy. Washington Post reporters noted that she displayed an upbeat attitude. They wrote that Lorena gave no hint of the mousy, withdrawn demeanor she exhibited in January. Afterward, She went to stay with family friends, the Castros, who had taken her in when she first immigrated to the U.S. from Venezuela. After an eight-month ordeal, 25-year-old Lorena Bobbitt hoped that she could finally settle into a more ordinary life. In the days following her release, Several news articles suggested that Lorena might try to sell their rights to her story. The publicist Lorena had hired to deal with the media did not discount these rumors. He indicated that Lorena was open to making a deal, but no tell-all memoir or TV movie materialized. In fact, Lorena felt oppressed by the public's fascination with her life, saying, I didn't choose this recognition, it was difficult. She turned down many requests for interviews and appearances. Lorena was desperate to keep a low profile and live a normal life. But John felt differently. He was thrilled with the attention and publicity his case had garnered. He was determined to keep his new celebrity status any way he could. Coming up, John tries to leverage his fame. Now back to the story. In February of 1994, 25-year-old Lorena Bobbitt was released from a state mental hospital in Petersburg, Virginia, after doctors determined that she was not a danger to herself or others. Lorena hoped to move on and start a normal life. She didn't want to relive her abusive marriage or the infamous act of mutilation that led to her trial. But her estranged husband, 27-year-old John Wayne Bobbitt, reveled in his notoriety. By the time Lorena was released from the hospital, John had already embarked on a 40-city publicity tour. He stopped at various radio stations, nightclubs, and car shows across the United States and Europe to sell merchandise, such as autographed steak knives and novelty John Bobbitt Private Parts Protectors. John's lawyer remarked that no one who has come to instant celebrity will have systematically exploited as many avenues as John Wayne Bobbitt. John apparently earned around $250,000 through his appearances and sales, but he still claimed to be broke. All the money he earned went to paying past due legal and medical bills. But even if he wasn't swimming in riches, John was still basking in his fame and attention. John bragged that women were more drawn to him than ever, fascinated to know whether or not his penis still worked. While on tour, he met a 21-year-old exotic dancer named Christina Elliott, and they soon moved into an apartment together in Las Vegas, Nevada. Newspapers reported that the pair were engaged. John's divorce was not yet finalized because John refused to sign the papers, but that didn't stop him from staging a photo shoot with Playboy magazine to celebrate his upcoming wedding to Christina. John bragged that the wedding would be broadcast on the E-television network and radio shock jock Howard Stern would be his best man. But John still seemed to have Lorena on his mind. At one point, he took Christina to Virginia and brought her on a tour of his old life. He showed her the apartment where he lived with Lorena, the salon where Lorena had worked, and even took her to the field where Lorena flung his dismembered penis. Christina said, he showed me every place where Lorena would have been. He was kind of obsessed. Psychologist Lisa Aronson-Fontes wrote that abusers often continue their controlling behavior even after the abusive relationship is over. She wrote, All too often, abusers interfere with the lives of their former partners for months, years or even decades after services and systems have moved on. It is difficult for people to believe that the formal end of a relationship, such as moving out or a divorce, does not always mean the end of the abuse or controlling behavior. The abuse just takes on new forms. Christina said that when she and John returned to Las Vegas after their trip to Virginia, he sometimes placed long distance calls to Lorena, but hung up when she answered. Then in May of 1994, John directed his abuse towards his new fiance. Christina accused him of yanking her arm and shoving her into a wall. Neighbors heard the couple yelling and came over to find Christina crying hysterically. They saw gashes in the wall. John admitted that he had punched it in anger, but denied hitting his fiance. He was arrested and charged with battery. He was released on bail the following day and John and Christina reconciled, continuing to live together. But two months later, police were again called to John's home. Christina claimed John beat her. When police examined her, they found bumps on her head, as well as bruises on her face and arms. John was again arrested and charged with domestic battery. According to the Domestic Violence Hotline website, Abusive behavior comes from learned attitudes and feelings of entitlement and privilege, which can be extremely difficult to truly change. Because of this, there's a very low percentage of abusers who truly do change their ways. The hotline also states that abusers need to deeply want and be committed to all aspects of change in order to begin doing so. But John seemed incapable of change or even recognizing the problems with his behavior. When he was with Lorena, he had denied abusing her, despite admitting to shoving and berating her. To him, this wasn't abusive. In his new relationship, he continued to deny all responsibility for his actions, calling the domestic violence a misunderstanding. After the second incident, a judge ordered him to stay away from Christina and to stop drinking alcohol while he awaited his trials on two separate battery charges. In the meantime, John continued to hold on to the spotlight. In August of 1994, he starred in a pornographic film about his life called John Wayne Bobbitt Uncut. He said, I believe I have something to prove. I want everyone to know Lorena failed. She wanted to take my manhood and hurt me for life. She failed in this effort. The film's release came right around the time he went before the court on his battery charges. In the first trial for domestic violence against his fiance, he was found guilty and sentenced to 15 days in jail, six months probation, and ordered to go to therapy and Alcoholics Anonymous. He served 12 days of his jail sentence before he was released for good behavior. John went to trial on his second battery charge a month later. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail and a year of probation. While sentencing John, the judge said, one thing is apparent and that is that you are a bully. I don't know how we're going to get this across to you that this is unacceptable behavior. The judge's admonition did not seem to register John was too busy enjoying fame to worry about rehabilitating himself. In the fall of 1994, he set about promoting his adult film. During his promotional tour, when asked about Lorena, John said, Yes, I love her still, and yes, I would like to go back with her. Me and Lorena are like OJ and Nicole. A love crime. He also said he hoped to visit her when he traveled to Virginia as part of his tour, reminding reporters, we're still married, you know. Lorena had no desire to be dragged back into John's life or into notoriety. In January of 1995, Lorena, now going by her maiden name Lorena Gallo, had returned to work as a manicurist at a small hair salon in Arlington, Virginia, Business at the salon went up after Lorena was hired, as gawkers came to see her for themselves. Her employer said, when people come in, they specifically say they want Lorena to do their nails. The poor thing doesn't get a break. When one journalist discovered where she worked and scheduled an appointment, Lorena chatted warmly with him as she tended to his nails. But after the media frenzy of the previous year, she worried about what he might report. She implored to him before he left, if you write something about this, be nice. Despite the slate of curious customers, for the most part, Lorena was successful in her efforts to stay under the radar. She worked steadily and made plans to re-enroll in community college, but John seemed determined to disrupt her life. In October of 1995, Lorena was in the middle of a typical day at work when John showed up with candy and flowers. He apparently wanted to win her back. Lorena was in shock. Lorena tried to keep the panic from taking over. She hadn't felt this kind of fear in more than a year, but now she could feel it taking over her body. She was trembling, sweating, her cheeks flushed. She heard her heart pounding in her ears. She felt every muscle in her body tense up. It was like she was primed for a fight. Lorena remembered what John had said when they were still married. He said he'd always be able to find her. He would never let her cut ties. He would continue to infest her life until he had tainted everything she cared about. But things were different now. It wasn't like when they were married. Back then, she had felt helpless. She didn't know how to walk away from him and she was terrified to try. She wasn't under his spell anymore. As frightening as he could be, Lorena was determined not to let him control her again. When John came into her salon, Lorena refused to speak with him. He left, but returned later in the day to try again. Lorena again refused to see him. Her co-workers, furious on Lorena's behalf, demanded that he leave. Lorena was shaken by the encounter and asked an off-duty police officer to escort her back to her car that evening, but she was now adamant about officially ending her marriage to John once and for all. In December of 1995, Less than two months after John showed up at Lorena's workplace and two years after her initial request for a divorce, Lorena's lawyers put more pressure on John to finally sign the papers. John ultimately agreed. When he signed the documents, he sketched a butcher's knife under his name. He said the picture was his trademark. Within weeks, the divorce was finalized. Also within weeks, John was ordered to go back to jail for violating the terms of his probation. After he was found guilty of battery against Christina, now his ex-fiance, the judge had ordered him to complete domestic violence counseling, but he had repeatedly skipped counseling sessions, violating the probation order. He claimed he couldn't concentrate on the sessions due to his learning disability. Ignoring this excuse, the judge ordered him to serve out the last four months of his jail sentence. John did learn one piece of good news. His adult film was a bestseller, with 60,000 copies sold in the US alone. John signed on to do a sequel, Frankenpenis. Prior to filming, he underwent penis enlargement surgery to boost the appeal of his films, but it was a botched procedure. In fact, John's cosmetic surgeon was eventually forced by the state medical board to stop performing the experimental surgery when dozens of his patients sued for malpractice. When John appeared on the Howard Stern Show to discuss the outcome of his surgery, even Stern seemed horrified by the grotesque irony of the situation. John had become famous due to the amputation and successful reattachment of his penis, only to then willingly disfigure his penis in his continued pursuit of fame. John's behavior was startling, but several psychologists have framed the desire for fame as a self-destructive, almost pathological drive. Dr. Dale Archer, Medical Director for Psychiatric Services at Lake Charles Memorial Hospital said, People get high from all the trappings that come with fame the special treatment, the publicity, the ego, fame has the potential to be incredibly addicting. Psychologists Donna Rockwell and David Giles interviewed several American celebrities for their study on fame. In reviewing the responses, Rockwell and Giles noted that, the lure of adoration is attractive and it becomes difficult for the person to imagine living without fame. John was still enthralled with the idea of being a celebrity, and with the doomed marriage that led to his notoriety. In one 1996 interview, 29-year-old John said, I've had a lot of women, but I still feel I belong to Lorena. I married her, I failed, but it would be too hard to try again. Lorena obviously had no intention of trying again, and by early 1996, the 26-year-old woman had taken steps to completely close the door on that chapter of her life. Ever since she was discharged from the Virginia State Mental Hospital, the Prince William County's Community Service Board continued to monitor her court-ordered therapy and oversee her progress. But in early 1996, she petitioned the court for an unconditional release so that she would no longer be subject to the board's supervision. The county prosecutor did not oppose Lorena's petition. He said, Unless she commits another crime, that's the end of it. There's no indication that this is a pattern. The judge granted Lorena's petition in March of 1996. Her lawyer remarked, Lorena is a far more confident woman today than she was after the trial. She is prepared to get on with her life and put this behind her. Coming up, we'll talk about the very different paths John and Lorena took as they slipped out of the public eye. Now, back to the story. For several years in the mid-1990s, The name Bobbitt was a national punchline. 26-year-old Lorena Bobbitt did everything she could to escape this infamy, including reverting back to her maiden name. But her ex-husband, 29-year-old John Wayne Bobbitt, did everything he could to bring as much attention to himself as possible. John went on publicity tours and radio shows. He gave dozens of interviews to journalists appearing on Larry King and 2020. He acted as a judge in a Lorena Bobbitt look-alike contest and he performed in two adult films. But John wasn't just linked to lurid cash grabs, he also made headlines for his trouble with the law. He was repeatedly jailed for domestic violence incidents against the women in his life. He also showed an obsession with his ex-wife Lorena even after their divorce was finalized in 1995. Lorena steered away from anything having to do with John or any reference to the well-publicized end to their marriage. But her relationship with John had obviously left scars. In December of 1997, police arrived at Lorena's home where she lived with her family, her parents and brother, had moved from Venezuela to be closer to her, and they all lived together in Woodbridge, Virginia. The police were called after an argument between Lorena and her mother turned physical. Lorena was arrested and charged with assault. She stood trial a few months later, but the judge found her not guilty. Her mother didn't want to testify against her, and she said both of them were at fault for the fight. In the following years, Lorena continued to live with her parents, work as a manicurist, go to therapy and attend community college. At college, she met a man named Dave Bellinger. They became friends and soon after, started a romantic relationship. Meanwhile, John was having trouble securing any kind of stability. In 1998, The 31-year-old was hired as a celebrity greeter at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch brothel in Moundhouse, Nevada, just outside of Carson City. But he was fired just a few months later for having sexual contact with the women who work there. After losing his job, John and his cousins went to the home of the brothel manager, Suzette Gwynn. John said that he was just there to plead for his job back Gwen said he threatened her. She called the police and then obtained a restraining order against him. A few months later, he was arrested, along with two of his cousins in connection with the scheme to steal $140,000 worth of clothes from a department store. He eventually pled guilty to attempted grand larceny and accepted a plea bargain to avoid felony charges. He was placed on five years probation in order to complete 100 hours of community service. Around this time, John decided to return to his hometown of Niagara, New York, where he hoped he'd have fewer brushes with the law. He brought his new girlfriend, Desiree Luce, with him. In November of 1999, John was arrested in New York. News reports at the time provide few details, They only mention that he was taken into custody after shoving Desiree against the wall. But according to Desiree, John nearly killed her. He beat her with various objects in the apartment. He dragged her across the room and pushed her out onto the balcony, then hung her over the edge by her limbs. When he pulled her back inside, Desiree said, he tied her to the bed, raped and sodomized her. He told her that she was his Lorena now and that she could not escape him. After three days of what Desiree called almost endless torture, she played dead until John untied her. As soon as she was loose, she fled the apartment. But at the time, for whatever reason, Desiree didn't make an accusation of rape. In November of 1999, John was charged only with harassment. While awaiting trial, he spent 17 days in jail before posting a $50,000 bond. At the trial, prosecutors called a neighbor to testify. The neighbor had witnessed John dragging Desiree through the apartment building's hallway. John was found guilty, but sentenced to no additional jail time. The 17 days he had already served were deemed a sufficient penalty. John's repeated court appearances did not deter him from his quest to keep his name alive in the public consciousness. He attempted to become a stand up comedian and an actor, but other than a guest appearance on the ABC sitcom Norm, he was unable to launch a sustainable career. He moved back to Las Vegas, Nevada, took a job as a driver for a moving company, and sought out other ways to make headlines. In May of 2001, John, now 34 years old, said he planned to file a motion with the Prince William Court in Virginia to obtain the kitchen knife used to sever his penis. He wanted to sell it. He told reporters, That knife is a huge part of American history, and it might be a collector's item. Although he hadn't spoken to Lorena in years, he said he'd like to reach out to her. He said, I'm sure it's in both our interests to auction it to a collector." Lorena did not comment on this request. Unfortunately for John, his demand was denied and the knife was destroyed. Around that same time, John was remarried to a woman named Joanna Farrell. Less than two months after their wedding, Joanna said that John threw her onto the floor and drove his knee into her back causing a broken tailbone and finger. John was later convicted of battery on these charges. A year later in 2004, he again went to court on charges of battery against his 14-year-old stepson, but he was acquitted. Despite finding John not guilty, the judge expressed frustration that John had not completed court-ordered anger management classes. In September of the following year, John was arrested on another charge against his wife, Joanna. He was accused of chasing her and pushing her to the ground during an argument, but he was acquitted after a judge ruled that his wife had not been injured. At the trial, John admitted that he displayed a pattern of domestic violence against women. He characterized it as a problem with judgment. After this incident, John filed for divorce. At about the same time, Lorena Gallo and her boyfriend, Dave Bellinger, were purchasing a home together in Loudoun County, Virginia. In 2006, they had a baby girl together. Two years later, 39-year-old Lorena founded a nonprofit called Lorena's Red Wagon, later renamed the Lorena Gallo Foundation, aimed at helping domestic violence victims. She trained as a domestic violence facilitator and volunteered at homeless shelters. As she leaned into advocacy, she became more comfortable doing public appearances. Lorena had stayed quiet for 15 years, but she felt that by returning to the public eye, she might be able to bring more attention to her cause. She appeared on programs like Oprah and The Steve Harvey Show to talk about her experiences. She said she hoped her appearances would encourage women to learn from her mistakes. On several of these programs, Lorena expressed bafflement at the fact that John still sent her letters, Valentine's Day cards, and phone messages. She mused, maybe he thinks we're still married. John denied ever sending anything, claiming that a friend was leaving her messages. Lorena kept many of the letters and cards John sent her, but she never responded. In 2009, 40-year-old Lorena agreed to appear with John on the ABC news program, The Insider. When she brought up how John had hurt her during their marriage, he responded, I really didn't know how sensitive you were you take things really seriously. After the appearance, Lorena returned to her life, her daughter, her long-term boyfriend, and her advocacy work. John took up celebrity boxing. Neither John nor Lorena have made many headlines in the last decade, but this past year, Monkey Paw Productions and Sonar Entertainment produced a four-part documentary series on the couple, which was released on Amazon Prime Video. Both John and Lorena agreed to be interviewed for the series. Lorena and her family even attended a screening of the documentary at the Sundance Film Festival. Lorena squeezed her 13-year-old daughter's shoulder as they sat through the screening. She didn't like this. She had never shared all of the details of her life with her child. She thought the girl was too young to know everything. Her instincts were to shield her daughter's eyes, but she resisted the impulse. Perhaps this was important. Perhaps it would bring them closer together. Lorena felt her boyfriend's arm encircle her and she leaned her head on his shoulder. Before the screening, she had felt so poised, meeting with reporters and giving interviews. But now, as she watched her story unfold, surrounded by her family, she felt her guard drop. Tears came to her eyes, and she let them fall. It was a bittersweet moment, but her heart was full. The documentary, entitled Lorena, was released in February of 2019. The reviews were mostly positive to Lorena's relief. She never forgot about the derisive taunts of late-night TV hosts, comedians, and radio show personalities that haunted her throughout the 1990s. Lorena said she knew she was opening herself up to renewed public scrutiny and possibly ridicule by doing the documentary series. But she said, I'll put myself through the jokes and everything as long as I can shine a light on domestic violence and sexual assault and marital rape. Since the documentary's release, both John and Lorena have kept relatively private and separate lives. The Bobbit's name may forever be associated with the sensationalistic events of June 23, 1993. But ultimately, Lorena would rather not dwell on the past, saying, I took my life back, and I've given myself a second chance. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back on Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. When True Love Meets True Crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the podcast network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs.